Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is July 4th, 2022. A very special day in the United States, the celebration of something that Americans call Independence Day. Of course, the idea of independence is problematic from many people's point of view. The notion particularly of independence from nature, which has always been the foundation perhaps of what we might think of as American democratic industrial capitalism, has been deeply problematic for the environment, for agriculture, and for the cities. This is an idea I've explored over the years. I I had a show uh, last year called uh, Regenerate, which was about fostering the transition to what we called a regenerative economy, a very different kind of economy, one built on organic farming, featured a lot of interesting thinkers, including the British uh, rewilding uh, farmer, Isabella Tree, and one of America's leading champions, pioneers of regenerative farming, Joel Salatin, a lot of thinkers as well, Paul Hawkin, for example, uh, Guiba Del Marmo, Uh, Otto Sharma, a philosopher at MIT. This idea of regenerative farming and of regenesis is becoming increasingly mainstream. And I'm thrilled that one of the the heaviest hitting environmentalists in the world is very much on board and pioneering and thinking about it. On his Twitter website, uh, he describes himself, it's best description, the best Twitter description I I think I've read, and it's probably pretty accurate as well, as the corpse at every wedding and the bride at at every funeral. He is, of course, uh, George Monbiat, and he has a new book out. It's out in the UK already, and it's out in the US in August. Uh, Regenesis, feeding the world without devouring the planet. And he's talking to me from Oxford. George, welcome. Thank you, Andrew. Great to talk to you. On Independence Day, George, do we need to get a, do we need to to do a spring clean with our language? Do we need to get away from words like independence from nature? Yeah, I mean, we we are totally dependent on a series of interlocking complex systems that we call nature. Um, in fact, we're a complex system ourselves, or a series of complex systems. The human brain is one, the human body is one. Unfortunately, we're never taught complex systems or systems theory in school, and so we are woefully ill-equipped to understand the world into which we emerge. Now, there are a whole load of complex systems which bear upon the global food system. And the global food system, as the name suggests, is itself a complex system subject to the same dynamics, the same um, loss of resilience under certain conditions as other systems are. And it's looking very parlous at the moment. Um, There's a series of papers going back several years saying the global food system looks uncannily like the global financial system in the approach to 2008. Those papers were ignored by everyone, by policymakers, by governments, by the media. Um, And then Russia's invasion of Ukraine happens and everyone says, oh my gosh, we've got a global food crisis. Well, actually that crisis has been building since 2015. And perhaps the history um, George works has its own logic. It's perhaps not surprising that Russia should have invaded the world's grain basket, bread basket. Well, Ukraine is one of those four or five nations on which pretty well the whole world depends. 
for grain. Um, we um, consume an extraordinary part of our diet. It consists of just four products, which are, are, are wheat, rice, maize or corn and soya or soy. And, um, and in each case, the great majority of those products, um, the exports of them come from just four or five countries and on a couple of um, crucial agricultural commodities, Russia and Ukraine feature among those four or five. So straight away, you can see a major vulnerability there. Then you look at how they are traded and you see that, uh, according to one estimate, four corporations control 90% of global grain trade. And as trade rules have been harmonized, as they say, standardized around the world, and infrastructure has been upgraded, ports and roads and things have been improved, the companies have gone, oh, great, we don't have to keep reserves anymore. We can switch from stocks to flows. Um, and so basically the world's food reserves is, are floating at sea on container ships. And then you look at the um, pinch points through which those um, food reserves are, are, are grain passes. And a very large proportion of the world's grain passes through a number of very tight choke points, the Panama Canal, the Suez Canal, which if you remember got blocked by a massive ship last year, um, the Turkish Straits, which are currently effectively blocked by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. If those two things incidentally had coincided, the food chain would have snapped instantly and huge numbers would immediately have gone hungry. The Bab al-Mandab, the Straits of Hormuz, the Straits of Malacca, just these few choke points, which, you know, you only need a couple of those to get blocked at the same time. And suddenly large areas of the world are without food. And then you look at how that food system has been standardized um, and how just like in finance in the run up to 2008, a few big players playing all by the same rules, um, very often pretty dodgy rules, synchronizing their behavior with each other, doing with, the same with, with algorithms that no one can understand and, and are often Absolutely. quite bogus. Incomprehensible, that's right. And then you suddenly see this is a system in very big trouble. This is a system which could break down very quickly indeed. In other words, it could pass a tipping point. Um, and now the financial system in 2008 very nearly passed a tipping point and it required a massive global bailout to push it back into a relatively safe space. But they could do that by drawing on future money. Now, if the food system collapses, you can't draw on future food to push it back into a safe space. Yeah, and you add inflation on top of that and all the political instability. George, let's return to the book, Regenesis, Feeding the World Without Devouring the Planet. It has a lot of soil on the front of the book. Mm -hmm. Uh, in my Regenerate Forum series, we talked endlessly about soil, about it being uh, both the problem and the hope of the future. Is the issue of soil at the heart of Regenesis? Mm. So I start with an exploration of the soil, which is the most fascinating. And it's a brilliant intro. Congratulations on the uh, intro. So it's thank memorable. Thank you so much, Andrew. Thank you. Thank you. Well, it, uh, it was. It reflects the wonder that I feel towards this amazing ecosystem. Now, most of the time, we don't even regard soil as an ecosystem, but it's as diverse and abundant as any co coral reef or rainforest under a single square meter of soil. You can have several hundred thousand animals living across thousands of species, 90% of which are unknown to scientists at the moment. 
And soil itself is a biological structure. It's been created by the creatures that live in it. Uh, without those creatures, there would be no such thing as soil. And it's maintained and rebuilt every day by those creatures. And so we're totally dependent on that web of life for the food that we eat. 99% of our calories come from the soil, and yet we treat it like dirt. We, we, we don't respect this extraordinary ecosystem, and we do all sorts of things to it, like putting on too much fertilizer, which, which makes the, the soil structure collapse, and it becomes airless and um, compacted and saturated. Um, or we use pesticides, which kill a lot of the soil life. Or we plow it too deeply, too damagingly, and destroy its structure that way. And soil, like any complex system, and you're getting the impression across this podcast that I'm a bit of a complex systems nut, um, it, it can absorb a certain amount of stress and you don't see much change and it'll suck it up and suck it up and suck it up. And then suddenly it'll be hit by an external shock like a major drought and it will collapse because that's what complex systems do. They, they absorb stress and they reach a tipping point and they collapse. And We've seen that in the past. Um, the Great Dust Bowl in the US is a very good example. In the 1930s, there's subsequently been a number of other dust bowls around the world. What happens in cases like that is that when a, a, a chronically degraded soil gets hit by a major drought, the erosion rate rises 6,000 fold, more or less overnight. And that basically means the soil just washes off. the George, land. to what extent is your book, Regenesis, and your argument, a critique of uh, big farming, of the exploitative, aggressive, short-term technology and mm. business of big farming? Is the problem simply, particularly in America, where you know the numbers, but my, mm. my impression is that the vast majority of the land is owned by a tiny group of Hmm. massive uh, agro companies. The problem is, is that no one's thinking in the long term. It, it's a highly concentrated industry and becoming more concentrated all the time. There's a huge amount of land grabbing going on around the world where local people are deprived of their land, often forcibly by um, foreign investors, sovereign wealth funds, um, oligarchs, just in collusion often with corrupt governments, just snatching people's land. But there are also much deeper problems. And, you know, we talk about the problem with big farming or the problem with intensive farming. But actually, environmentally, the problem is not the adjective. It's the noun. And farming as a whole, right across the board, is the greatest cause of habitat destruction, the greatest cause of wildlife loss, the greatest cause of extinction, the greatest cause of land use, which perhaps should be top of the list, the greatest cause of water use, the greatest cause of soil degradation, one of the greatest causes of climate breakdown, of water pollution, of air pollution. Um, growing food on the planet, which obviously we have to do, is the worst thing we've ever done to the living world. It's by far and away the most damaging industry. And yet we give it a free pass because we've got all these romantic associations surrounding farming. It's been there so long, but we don't judge it by the same standards that we judge other industries. You know, if, if, if the fossil fuel industry or the chemical industry were doing half of what farming does to the surface of the earth, we'd be absolutely horrified and we'd be up in arms. But we just accept it because, hey, that's the way it's always happened. And, and now, of course, it's happening on a much greater scale. And, of course, and, everything, and, damages... and, and, and you're an extremely political writer. Um, much of this does come down to politics. I did a show last month with 
a young Maine uh, Senator, Chloe Maxmim, who suggests, uh, given the politics of America and the the power of rural states, that Democrats need to start listening to rural America. She has a new book out, Dirt Row Revival, How to Rebuild Rural Politics and Why Our Future Mm -hmm. Depends on It. You had an interesting piece, George, about this is Britain, why only a tiny minority of rural Britons are farmers? Why do they hold such sway? I think you might re- you might be arguing the reverse of Max. I mean, mm. we need to listen to farmers less. Is that fair? Yes, um, it, it is remarkable the extent to which in this country, at any rate, um, farmers are seen as synonymous with rural people and the countryside is seen as farming. And yet um, in the UK as a whole, even taking the maximalist definition of who a farmer or a farm worker is, including all the partners of farmers and directors and managers and everyone who might possibly be involved in a farm, that's 0.5% of the total population and 3% of the rural population. In other words, 97% of people in the countryside here are not farmers. And yet... There's almost no policy for that 97% of people. If you're not a farmer, you're a second-class citizen. You just your your interests and your needs are not recognised, and there's a huge democratic deficit there. Now, look, I'm not anti-farming. You know, we we desperately need farming, though we need it done better. But we also need the interests of farmers balanced against the interests of the living world and the interests of the rest of the population. And at the moment, there is no such balance. I mean, around the world, we pay half a trillion dollars in farm subsidies, which are mocked up on the whole by the very biggest landowners, many of whom aren't even farmers themselves, they're absentee owners. Um, Almost all of them are environmentally damaging. And despite paying all this money, we have effectively no say in how that money is spent. This is taxation without representation. George, it, it might one of the problems be that we're fetishizing nature too much, at least the wealthy people of the world are fetishizing nature. We did a show with a young environmentalist, I'm not sure if you're familiar with her work, Lindsay Borger, and she has an interesting new book out, Tree Thieves, Crime and Survival in North America's Woods. The book is written on behalf, not of farmers, but of tree thieves, of of the poor living in rural communities. To what extent is regenesis, if it's to happen, um, rooted in in rethinking social class and politics and power in the countryside Mm. itself? Well, all this is essential. In fact, we've sort of ceded a class analysis to an occupations analysis. And so we said, well, the farmers need this or uh, this other group of workers needs this. And actually, you know, what is a farmer? Well, a farmer can be a super rich absentee landowner uh, among the richest people in the world, have huge tracts of land and claim massive subsidies for it. Or they can be a really poor smallholder, barely scratching a living. You can't lump them all together and say farmers are like this or farmers are like that. Farmers need this or farmers need that. But the class analysis has been buried by the occupational approach. And so we say, well, farmers need to be subsidised. We say, hang on a moment. You know, the poorest people in the countryside are farm workers, often grossly exploited by farm owners. But it's the farm owners who are being subsidised. There's something very wrong there. How serious... um... George, is this crisis? I mean, you talk about something like 2008. We've done so many shows on the imminent breakdown of our environmental system. 
did one with Eugene Linden, for example, a couple of months ago. He talks about our path to a livable future becoming narrower and narrower. Give me some concrete. Um, looks like you're escaping already, sorry. George. The apocalypse no, sorry, has just, arrived. The, um, the, the noise was the noise uh, has arrived. Give me some. Give me some hard data about how much time we have left to fix uh, the world, to feed the world without devouring the planet, as you suggest in Regenesis. What happens if we don't address any of the issues that you talk about in the book by, say, 2030, 2035? You cannot put a hard and fast timeline on any of this because we don't know when a tipping point is going to happen until it's happened. That is the nature of complex systems. What you do know is that in as a tipping point approaches, you see the output of a system beginning to flicker. So with the global financial system, for instance, in the approach to 2008, we saw wild fluctuations in equity values. And that was a classic uh, sign of the system flickering. Uh, and it just about reached its tipping point when Lehman Brothers collapsed. Governments literally had a few hours to stop the whole thing from going down and um, a crisis of unimaginable proportions happening. With the food system, I think we're beginning to see that flickering. We're seeing um, great fluctuations in, in um, world food prices. Um, at the same time, we are seeing more and more disruptions to supply. So the really frightening and interesting thing is that um, from 2015 onwards, the global rate of chronic hunger began to rise, having been falling pretty well consistently since since the 1960s all the way to 2014. And that rise coincided with a major fall in food prices in the global food price index. It went from 115 to 93 between 2014 and 2015. Well, that sounds crazy. How could that possibly be? Surely if food gets cheaper, fewer people go hungry. But what it, what had started to happen then was that as the system was losing its resilience and becoming more concentrated, more vulnerable, shocks were being more easily transmitted through it. Um, and those shocks were landing on the poorest nations. So for instance, if there's a speculative surge in one commodity or one country imposes a minor export ban, we in the rich nations don't feel that, but it lands on the poor nations with the soft currencies and they get local price spikes, even while the global price is low. And that that seems to account for the rise in chronic hunger since 2015. And that is a sign of flickering. That is a sign of the system approaching its tipping point. Now, what tends to tip systems finally over the edge is an external shock. We've had one big external shock with Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Um, in uh, mid-April, the Indian government came forward and said, don't worry, we will fill the gap because we've got a massive wheat harvest on the way. Uh, four weeks later, they said uh, about those wheat exports, um, that we had a huge heat wave, all the grain shriveled on the plants, and now we're imposing a total export ban. So what we've seen there is a geopolitical shock followed by a climate shock. And we're going to see more and more of these climate shocks. And in fact, those climate shocks might well trigger various geopolitical shocks as well. And so the chances of this system surviving and coming through without radical change seem to me very slight. Very briefly, and, George, because mm, uh, I, I want to get onto some fixes. You're not mm, just a no. corpse. You're also a bride. Mm, we're going yeah. to put your bridal uniform on in a couple of seconds. But to what extent... You, you, you've said several times in this conversation that you're a systems thinker. 
and you clearly are one of the most important. How much is this bound up, not just in world hunger, but also in our obesity, our obesity crisis, our health crisis, COVID, um, and the, the, the crisis of anxiety, mental illness now sweeping the West. It, it's all part of the same problem, isn't it? We're seeing a series of converging crises, some of which are existential crises, um, a lot of which are to do with power, to do with oligarchic power displacing democracy um, in many nations around the world. Um, and when that happens, you get these killer clowns elected into office because they're the people who have the money behind them. Um, and they will smash everything up, which is what the oligarchs want, um, because that allows them to then pick up the pieces and monopolize new parts of the economy which weren't in their hands before. Um, and all, all of these crises are connected to that. Um, they're connected to the series of crises caused by neoliberalism, which has been the dominant force in our lives since the early 1980s, even though most people have never even heard of the term. It's extraordinary. It's like people in the Soviet Union not having heard of communism. Um, and well, certainly and people who, who view this re uh, regularly have heard the, the term. Good. I'm very glad to hear. Very glad to hear it. And 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 then we see all these environmental crises, which are effectively unaddressed by these governments for the same reasons. You know, they they don't believe in intervening they believe in allowing oligarchic money and corporate money to do whatever it wants and that means we don't deal with these existential environmental crises so what i'm calling for you won't be surprised to hear in regenesis is system change and i'm looking at a whole lot of ways in which we can change the global food system looking um i broke it break it up into horticulture right so, so let's begin that george we, we've talked you probably convince most people to commit suicide. Um, but now, rather than being a corpse at, at, at the wedding, I want you to be the bride. W what are we going to do about this? Because you haven't given up hope. In fact, uh, at least half of Regenesis is optimistic and hopeful about mm. fixing this crisis. Yeah. So there are some very interesting new technical approaches, which are part of the answer, by no means all with the political and economic ones as well, obviously. But if we start with grain, I think possibly the most exciting approach, which is now um, uh, coming fully on stream, is the switch from annual to perennial grain crops, because the the almost all the grain that we eat worldwide comes from plants which live and die within one year, annual plants. Now, large areas covered by annual plants are rare in nature, and they generally only happen in the wake of a disaster. So, for instance, a volcanic eruption or a wildfire or a landslide, and that bare land can then be populated by these very fast reproducing annual plants. But then after a couple of years, they get swallowed up by the perennial plants, the long-lasting plants which live from year to year, which, which come in and close the gap. So in other words, in order to grow our grain crops, we have to create an environmental disaster every year. We have to clear the land, either by plowing it or by spraying it, kill off all the competing plants. And then we have to cosset and nurture those little baby plants that we've sown because they need a lot of looking after in the first few weeks of life. And that means more herbicides, pesticides, lots of fertilizer, loads and loads of inputs. You know, we had to have a sort of scorched earth policy and then all this 
um, uh, damaging in environmental uh, agricultural technology in order to give these plants a chance. If we were to switch to perennials, by contrast, we have a huge opportunity, a really fascinating opportunity, greatly to lower environmental damage, but also to make our crops more environmentally resilient. And the Land Institute in Salina, Kansas, has been pioneering the development of a lot of these crops. Um, the first of them um, is now fully commercialized. It's a variety of, of rice, um, which is being grown now um, commercially in southern China. Um, and uh, though it's a perennial crop, in other words, it stays in the ground from one year to the next, after six harvests, it's still producing the same yield as annual rice does, and it's an identical crop effectively. And farmers are desperate for the seed because it greatly reduces soil erosion because you don't have to plow the land every year, but also it greatly reduces the need for labor for the same reason. And uh, a lot of the young people have gone to the cities and so there's a real labor shortage. It's in great that this is happening in Kansas, as I'm sure you know, there's a huge debate about Kansas as the symbol of the Midwest and of the crisis. Um, We've had lots of shows about that. I know you, you, you you're a big admirer of a, of a regenerative UK-based farmer, Ian Tolly mm. Tolhurst. As mm. I said, we um, we had a number of uh, uh, regenerative farmers on the show, including Joel Salatin. I'm sure you know his work. To what extent do we need to generate um, a new generation of, of regenerative farmers like Tolhurst? Yeah, so I'd say that Ian Tollhurst or Tolly is 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 one of the few who's practicing what I would call genuinely regenerative farming. I mean, a lot of it is regenerative farming, formerly known as farming, like the word or organic. Uh, I, I, sorry to interrupt, um, George, but this isn't organic farming. It's very different, isn't it? So he goes far beyond um, what we see as organic. I mean, there are some problems with mainstream organic farming. I mean, there's major issues with nitrogen loss and and you know a lot of issues to do with animal manure which isn't a great soil additive there's 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 various problems with it but he goes way beyond this using this technique which to a very large extent he's pioneered which enables him to farm without any fertilizers or any manure and yet for 34 years on his land his soil fertility has steadily risen and his yields have steadily risen as well. And what he's managed to do, it seems, although we, we're not completely sure and we don't know why some people are able to replicate his techniques and other people on different land aren't. So we haven't worked everything out yet. But it seems he's, he's managed to mediate the relationship between plants and the bacteria and fungi in the soil which act as a gateway between the plants and the soil. They deliver the nutrients, they do plant defense, a whole lot of other things. And by tweaking the amount of carbon that he puts on the soil, he puts a very small amount of wood chip, millimeter of wood chip per year, on top of um, the, the green um, plants that he grows in between his crops. And, and that seems um, somehow to have changed that relationship between bacteria and fungi uh, and plants to the extent that he needs no fertilizer or manure. And it seems miraculous. I mean, it seems impossible, but it works. And it's uh, proven to have worked now for 34 years and it's getting better and better. And quite a few growers have very successfully adopted his techniques. Others haven't, and we don't yet know why. So Anything we need a in lot the US? I mean, there. 
what do you think of regenerative farmers like Joel Salatin? I'm highly skeptical of his uh, his approach. Um, so, you know, for instance, you know, we're talking about the chickens following the cows. You know, I know of no operation anywhere on earth where chickens can produce any um, appreciable amount of meat or eggs unless they're getting supplementary feeding. If they're just feeding off the land, they're going to be really scrawny. Um, so it's that's. I mean, there's there's quite a lot of um, reasons why I've become quite skeptical of his approach um and i i just think you know we, we we need to interrogate every case individually and just because something is labeled regenerative doesn't necessarily mean it is george i had a wonderful interview with you with the new scientist um podcaster rowan uh hooper rowan was on the show recently he has a new book out how to save the world for just a trillion dollars, uh, trillion dollars, the 10 biggest problems we can actually fix. If I gave you, and you might have talked to Rowan about this, if I gave you a trillion dollars, what would you do with it? To fix, yeah, I'd waste to it. To fix this crisis <laughs> of the soil. No. Yeah, so we, I mean, some of it I would spend on a massive new research and development program. I mean, nearly all government research money for farming reinforces the standard corporate model you know that standard model with the same seeds the same machinery the same chemicals and that is what's driving us more quickly than anything else towards disaster so we need to break things up and we need to um, diversify our um, food production system and um, we need to develop a genuinely regenerative agriculture, which means minimum inputs and maximum output. Uh, so what we're looking for is high, high yield, low input farming. And there's very, very little of that around the world. A few people like Tolly, Ian Tollhurst, have been able to do it. We need to know why. We need to put a lot of money into finding out and to discovering how best to replicate that. Because if we can, then we really can feed the world without devouring the planet. What about the role of technology, um, George? Uh, we had a fellow British journalist, Jenny Kleeman, on the show uh, last week. She has a new book out, Sex, Sex Robots and Vegan Meat. She's slightly skeptical, but not entirely about the role of technology in the production of food. Do you think some environmentalists, particularly on the left, are um, overly anti tech and that perhaps one fix might be in vertical farming for example mm -hmm. urban farming that mm -hmm. we need to rethink the very idea of this split between not just the countryside and the city but also between farming and technology well look, we certainly need technology but vertical farming isn't one of those technologies i see business after business startup say we're going to solve it with vertical farming and within a year or two they lose their shirts why because they're competing directly with horizontal farming in the countryside where the land costs one percent of the price they don't need to build load-bearing structures you can just and you've got natural light rather than having to produce the light yourself now the only financial advice i give to anyone is don't ask me for financial advice but even i can see this sucks and and i watched aghast as one venture after another went bust and you thought i told you i told you i told you and they keep saying well we were ahead of our time no you weren't you were ahead of the, so it's like the farming equivalent of uh, cryptocurrency physics. is it yeah 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 it's, it's just it's just bullshit um, but there are texts which are absolutely crucial and I think are very exciting and potentially transformative. And we need to get past our neophobia 
and understand that some of these could really help to save save us from this this coming catastrophe and one of them is precision fermentation it's a refined form of brewing which brews microbes to produce protein and fat i was the um, first person outside the laboratory to eat um, a pancake made from bacterial flour um, in helsinki finland uh, a small flip for man and it tasted just like a pancake um, uh, and but but you can turn this protein and fat into virtually anything. It's got a tiny footprint, tiny land footprint, tiny water footprint, tiny nutrient footprint by comparison to um, um, any protein or fat product produced by farming, whether it's meat, milk, soya, palm oil, um, and it could absolutely transform things. Um, so it, it's and, and the uh, one of the uh, leading technologies, there's quite a few, um, involves hydrogen oxygenating bacteria. So the feedstock is hydrogen. You don't need any agricultural products, any photosynthetic products um, to, to power this system and to produce this food. And, and I think this is transformative. It will um, not only, I believe, replace animal products um, relatively quickly, but it will also um, um, trigger a whole new diet, a whole new cuisine um, which we can't even imagine at this stage, just as the first people to capture and uh, capture a wild cow in the Neolithic weren't thinking about camembert. George, could we imagine escaping this Manichaean distinction between the countryside and the city? I did a show recently with Tony Hiss. I'm sure you know his work, an American environmentalist rescuing the planet, in which he believes that we need to protect half the earth to heal the land. So one half of us live in cities, the other is a kind of cordoned off nature. In your imaginary world, uh, a regenerated world, which you talk about in Regenesis, can we bring the city and the countryside back together, perhaps using the kinds of technologies which are being pioneered uh, in Finland that you just talked about? Uh, yeah, we very much can. Um, I, I think that you know a lot of our food is going to be produced in factories, not on farms, and I'm very happy with that. I think that um, means um, allowing huge tracts of the planet to be returned to nature. So, so paradoxically, this sort of more urban, technological, industrial approach is much, much better for the living world than agricultural sprawl which is our current approach, occupying huge areas of land, often to produce not very much food. And that's particularly the case with grazing. Grazing is by far the most damaging thing we do. The worst farm products you can possibly eat are is organic pasture-fed beef. And the reason for that is a huge amount of land it occupies, land which would otherwise be used for, for wild forests and wetlands and savannas and natural grasslands, all of which are essential for the great majority of life forms to live in. Um, most life forms on Earth require um, ecosystems from which we're not extracting products. Um, and by occupying such a huge amount of the planet to produce so little food, which is what pasture-fed beef and lamb and, and, and other pastured meat does, um, we ensure that we um, manage to um, uh, destroy on a really huge scale. George, do you consider yourself a storyteller? We've done a number of shows about how to tell stories about the environment. One, for example, with the Harvard scholar Martin Pushner a couple of weeks ago, Literature for a Changing Planet, also did something with Kerry Arsenault and uh, Bathsheba Demuth. 
what do you think of yourself as a polemicist, a storyteller, someone who is simultaneously a corpse and a bride? Well, you have to be a bit of everything um, in, 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 in a business like mine. Um, you know, I'm a journalist, I'm a campaigner, I'm a writer, I'm yeah, a storyteller. Um, but also most of my time, the great majority of my time is spent researching. I read over 5,000 scientific papers when I was researching Regenesis. It was crazy. You know, it's, uh, every day was a 14-hour day. Um, but you have to do that if you're going to get some grasp of what surrounds us and, and, and what our choices are. Otherwise, you just, you're just wading through ignorance. And so you kind of have to be all of those things. And you have to be a bit of a performer. And um, it's, it's, it sort of seems, seems like a crazy life, but it, it's, um, it's one that I quite enjoy, just sort of chopping and changing, probably being, being the jack of all trades and the master of none. But I guess that's what journalism is. Uh, George, you, let's end with, back to your point about the tipping point. You see the tipping point. Most people don't. What has to happen, seriously? Uh, most people are going to be listening and probably half agreeing with you, but most people aren't willing to change their behavior. Um, I know you think that the story of gay marriage is an interesting one. We did a, mm. a show recently with Sasha Eisenberg about the engagement, America's quarter-century struggle over same-sex marriage. And what Eisenberg told us is that 50 years ago or 25 years ago, it was unimaginable that people would mm. accept same-sex yeah. marriage. And now no one even thinks about it. I know you've made this comparison between same-sex marriage and the environment. Um, what, what can we learn from other successful movements like same-sex marriage when it sure. comes to the environment? So, so what this shows us, I think, is, is that society is also a complex system which has tipping points, just to save us other complex systems. And in fact, there's been a great deal of, of research on this, both experimental and observational, showing that those um, tipping points um, occur when you've reached roughly 25% penetration. So when 25% of people accept a new idea, suddenly it goes general. And what we saw with gay rights campaigners very effectively, they widened the circle of social acceptance and they kept widening it and widening it. And then it hit that 25% threshold. And then suddenly it went from being, oh, you can't have gay marriage to, well, yeah, what's the problem with that? You know, that, that extraordinary transition that was seen happening in a very short amount of time. And this gives me hope. You know, people despair far too easily. They think, oh, you know, we have to reach everyone. How can we possibly do that? We're never going to create the societal transformation. Actually, you don't have to reach everyone. You have to reach 25%. And then you get that tipping point and things change very, very quickly. Well, I hope we've helped reach not the tipping point, but convincing that 25%. Certainly your work, George, is of enormous importance. Your newest book, Regenesis, Feeding the World Without Devouring the Planet, is already out in the UK. It'll be out um, in the US next month. Uh, what else are you reading these days, George? I'm sure you're busy. You told me you do a huge amount of research. What, what is uh, yeah. on your bedside reading table? <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, well, uh, right now I'm reading This Land by Owen Jones, which explains what happened to the Labour Party in, in the UK, which, which is a topic I'm, I've become more and more interested in because it's still, it's been such a bumpy ride recently. Um, at the same time, I'm reading um, Maggie O'Farrell's Hamnet, just about finished that. Um, 
I've just uh, been reading Chekhov's short stories again, which I often turn back to. That it's just such beautiful writing. Um, yeah, I've always got a novel and a nonfiction book on the go. Um, so, um, and I, I tend to sort of chop between the two. Um, and um, as soon as interest wanes in one, I move to the other and then back again. Um, but I like to keep up to speed with fiction. 